It's been uh, such a joy to be with you these last couple days. I can't tell you how encouraging it is uh, for me personally to have reflected and written and uh, for so long on attributes that are not easy sometimes to understand, and then to see churches like like this church uh, just taking out your pen and, and going at it and wanting very eagerly uh, to understand God and to know God and for that to, to change who you are and, and what you do. Uh, it's such an encouragement to me, and especially with that last song, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. If you were here yesterday, <clears throat> then you know just how, uh, how much that, that old hymn uh, reflects God's immutability, his unchanging nature, and how his immut- immutability uh, affects our Christian lives. Yesterday, we dove into attributes like immutability, <clears throat> as well as others like God's incomprehensibility, his infinitude, and his impassibility. But this morning, I want to bring you Back to the text of Scripture to yet another attribute of God, his aseity, his aseity. Have a finger in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17. Let me ask you a question. What was God doing before he created the world. What was God doing before he created the world? Perhaps he was lonely. And being lonely, he needed to fill that empty hole in his heart. So he decided to create the world. That way he could have fellowship with others. And now that the world is here, well, God is not so lonely anymore. Because of us, he feels fulfilled and whole. Well, that's the answer that I've heard many give. It's not an uncommon answer to give. It can be heard, in fact, in many churches around the country. But I need you to think hard with me this morning, to brace yourself even. Because what I'm about to say may strike against your intuitiveness. It may even shock you. And it's this. God does not need you. And he surely doesn't need me. In fact, he doesn't need anyone or anything. He doesn't need the world at all. God is not a needy God. It's not as if he was bored, twiddling his thumbs, 
desperately lonely prior to creating the world. God is not dependent on the world for his existence, nor is he dependent on the world for his happiness or self-fulfillment. Instead, he possesses life in and of himself. He is the fullness of life in and of himself. What we are describing is none other than the attribute of aseity. Now, don't let that term throw you off, whether you've heard it or not. It is an old Latin term. comes from ase, which simply means from himself. And depending on what you've been taught, it's likely that this word, aseity, is not something that just comes up in Christian conversations. But we're going to discover this morning that this is an attribute that is assumed throughout Scripture and proves to be key, essential to unlocking everything we know about God. To affirm God's aseity is to say, first and foremost, that He is life in and of Himself. And on that basis, He must be the God who is self-existent and self-sufficient. It's precisely because God is life in and of Himself that there can be no sense in which He is caused by another. Perhaps we could even change the word a little and say we could affirm not just aseity but inseity for that very reason. But there is a more fundamental difference here between the nature of our Creator and us, the creature. He has life in and of Himself. We, on the other hand, derive life from the one who is life. We are born into this world despite what, our, what we've been told and how much we think we are autonomous. We are born into this world totally dependent, finite in every way. Our existence is derived in its most basic form, from our mother and our father. And if we continue living, the God of the universe is the one who must sustain us. We are that fragile. We are dependent on not only our earthly father, but our heavenly father. And our nature, our very existence, is contingent on him in every single way. Not so with God. His nature is not like our nature. In fact, you heard echoes of that in Psalm 86 this morning. He is incomprehensible, incapable of being measured by the same standards of our human existence. Unlike everything in this world, his existence is not grounded in, it's not derived from, it's not contingent on something or someone else. No one brought him into being nor is he dependent on anything to continue being. He is underived, unconditioned by that which is finite, 
contingent, limited, and changeable everything we see in this world. Isn't this evident from how He created the world in the first place? He did not depend upon some pre-existing matter to create this universe. He created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. Only one who has no beginning or cause can bring this world into existence out of nothing. The unmoved mover, as we learned yesterday. This means, of course, that if he is uncaused, well, his existence is grounded in himself alone. Something that can be said of nothing and no one else. Now notice, that means not that he created himself or created himself to be, but that he alone, as that medieval father Anselm said, one of my favorites, he alone has of himself all that he has, while other things have nothing of themselves. And other things, having nothing of themselves, have their, own, their only reality from Him. Did you hear that? That phrase, He has of Himself all that He has? That summarizes this concept of aseity. The same cannot be said of objects in our created world. Place next to God, Augustine says, place next to God, they are deficient in beauty, goodness, and being. But there is no such deficiency in God. Aseity defines God as the perfect being. And isn't that where beauty is found? Where do we see this attribute of aseity shine through in the story of the Bible? Well, there are many places we could turn. In fact, the Old Testament is filled with references of aseity. It pervades its storyline. But as we get to the New Testament and the gospel itself, the gospel is proclaimed to all people, this good news for all nations. And as it's proclaimed, it's paramount that those hearing this good news understand who exactly this saving God is to begin with. This is a reminder to us that who God is certainly matters for the gospel. It matters even for evangelism and apologetics. Look at Acts 17, for example. Specifically, verses 16 through 34. The Apostle Paul turns to God's aseity as the basis for his evangelism to these Athenians. In Acts 17, Paul's in Athens, famous, by the way, for its rich philosophical tradition, including thinkers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And it's there that he encounters the city's greatest philosophers, right in the marketplace. 
It's like a heavyweight championship. Apostle Paul versus one of their best. And as Paul walks through the city, his spirit, we read in verse 16, notice what it says, his spirit is provoked within him. Why would this be? As Paul walks, he sees that this city is full of idols. And such idolatry motivates Paul to preach Jesus and his resurrection, a teaching that is going to be brand new to many of these Athenian hearers. They're curious. Curious as to, what is this, this new teaching? What is this all about? And so they invite Paul. They label him, in verse 18, this preacher of foreign divinities. And they say, come with us into our Areopagus. What I find so striking in this passage, really in all the book, the entire book of Acts, is in this passage, Paul takes a very strategic approach. Look at verse 22. How does he begin? He acknowledges how religious his audience is, given the many gods that they are worshiping, or at least gods that they are talking about and philosophizing over. But notice what he does in verse 23. He turns this moment into an opportunity to compare the gods that they worship with the one true and living God. And he points to this altar dedicated to the unknown God. And Paul says, what you worship as unknown, I will now make known to you. Look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There it is. Keep in mind, included among these listeners are Stoic philosophers. Philosophers who believed that nature is divine in some sense. That everything in nature, humans included, has the spark of divinity within. And for these Stoics, the divine is absolutely dependent and related to this created order. So much so that the divine is identified with the created order. Today, as we look around at the ideas floating around in our culture, many different worldviews like pantheism, where God is the world and the world is God, or panentheism, which says the world is not identical with God, but it is within God. All these worldviews, well, they share similarities. Maybe they're distant cousins to these ancient Stoics and their outlook. God and the world In this view, God and the world are mutually dependent. But such worldviews imprison God. They make the world necessary. 
and compromise God's divine essence, making his existence dependent on the world itself. Notice what Paul says by contrast. God is the creator, which means the entire world owes its existence to him. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, says Paul. He does not need you. He's not served by human hands. If he were, then creation would be Lord instead of him. As the giver of life and all things, God is not in need of anything, says Paul. It's not as if he lived in a temple as the gods of Athens do, depending on others to to feed him, to serve him, so somehow he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The God Paul preaches, well, this God, by contrast, is self-sufficient, self-existent, independent of the world. He does not need humans, nor is he to be confused with the created order. He is not one with the created order, but Lord over the created order. For he is the creator of the universe. Here we see our attribute and focus. God is by nature independent. I'll say. But wait a minute. Isn't it true that Scripture also says that we serve God? That we give to God? Yes, it does. And yet, we give to God only what He has first given to us. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke 16, you may remember the parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the dishonest manager. Jesus teaches us here that we are stewards of God. And as stewards, we will each be held accountable for what we have done with all that God has given to us. And then if you look at Luke 17, Jesus is clear that even when we obey, doing what He has asked, we have only done what is required of us. We should not think that God is Isn't this essential to to living the Christian life? We should not think that God is somehow obligated to repay us. How often do we fall into that mindset? I know I do. As if He owed us back. Luke 17.10, our response should simply be, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. This is a lesson Job learned the hard way, right? Through his intense suffering, we learn at the start of the book, though Job doesn't know it, we learn that all of this is ordained by God himself. Job is tempted... No thanks to his friends. He's tempted to curse God. And at the end of the book, after a very long, long silence, and when you are suffering, it feels like an eternity, doesn't it? 
a long silence, God finally answers Job. But maybe not in the way Job expected. Explaining that, Job, I owe no explanation, no apology, no debt to anyone. Not even you, Job. Job is not in a position to be God's advisor. Job 41.11 God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven, Job, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. No doubt Job finds these words sobering. And so does the Apostle Paul. In Romans 11, Paul actually quotes Job 41.11 to make a very similar point. In this context, salvation. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. My wife and I have four children. And sometimes one of them will start fighting. I know it's very unique to our family, but they do fight more often than sometimes dad or mom wants. Sometimes they will start fighting with their big brother or sister or little brother and sister. And they'll say something like, this is my room. Get out. Or when mom asks one of them to maybe share their ice cream with their little brother or sister, they'll say, but this is... But mom, mom, this is, this is my ice cream. <laughs> In these moments, it's hard, right, as parents. Sometimes we act this way too. We need to remind our children that, well, actually, you don't own anything. Everything they have was first given to them. And so whenever they give or share, they are giving or sharing that which was first given and shared with them. There's a few uh, classics, TV classics, sorry to disappoint you, that those who are wanting another quote from Augustine, or a few TV classics that compare to that family dynamic, the, Huxtable, the Huxtables and the Cosby Show. Some of you may remember this episode where Vanessa comes home from school very upset, announcing that she was in a fight. And Cliff, being Cliff, right, naturally asked, did you win? And Vanessa sits down with Cliff and Claire, and, you know, Claire, far more concerned and serious. Vanessa explains how two girls at school called her a stuck-up rich girl. And Vanessa, you know, rolled up her sleeves, and the next thing you know, the, the girls are rolling on the ground, fighting one another over these words. 
And Cliff interrupts her in the midst of telling this, you know, this story and says, did you take them both on? And Vanessa explains how Mr. Morris pulled uh, all of them apart, made them all apologize with one another. And once more, Cliff can't help himself. If Mr. Morris hadn't stopped you, you think you, you would have won? <laughs> and, you know, at that point, Claire gives Cliff one of those, those glares. But then Vanessa says something that invites a glare from Cliff, as well as Claire. None of this would have happened if, if we weren't so rich. <laughs> and there's this long silence as Cliff and Claire just stare at her. <laughs> and Cliff folds his hands and says, let me, let me get something straight, okay? Your mother and I are rich. You have nothing. <laughs> you can tell your friends and your enemies that, okay? I think at one point he even says, the very air you breathe belongs to your mother and I. It's, it's one of my favorite moments. Hilarious. But it's also very true, isn't it? If this is true with your kids, how much more so in relationship to our Creator, right? Yes, we serve Him, we give to Him, whether it be our time or our finances, whatever sacrifice it may be, but we need to remember, much like Vanessa, we need to remember that as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, all that we have is from the Lord in the first place. Friends, there's not one breath that you take, not one minute of time, there's not one single dollar that is truly ours. It all belongs to the Lord. And as Job learned from firsthand experience, he can take it away in an instant. And he has the right to. And therefore, doesn't this change our entire perspective? It should, that we struggle to. I struggle with this. When we serve God and when we give to God, we should do so out of thanksgiving, remembering that all of this is his to begin with. Now that it's clear just how dependent we are and just how independent God is, it's crucial for you to understand how this attribute of aseity relates to all the other attributes of God. If God is life in and of himself, what other great-making, perfect-making attributes follow? Well, we don't have time to cover them all, do we? But let me just mention a few of them quickly. To begin with, if God is self-sufficient, then he's also self-divine. For a God who is self-existent cannot receive his deity from anything or anyone outside himself. 
Isn't this what sets our God apart? If He is self-sufficient, then He's also self-wise. For if others could inform God of what is wise or what wise choices He should make, then He would be less than perfect in His wisdom, growing in wisdom as He receives it from others. Also, if God is self-sufficient, then He also must be self-virtuous. For if He has received His virtue from another, then He could not be perfectly moral and holy. He who increases in virtue cannot be the very standard of morality. If God is self-sufficient, then He also must be self-attesting, since He is the very criteria for truth itself, just as He is for morality. God does not merely possess truth, know the truth, speak the truth. He is the truth. To know the truth, everyone must look to Him because He is the very standard of truth. How counterintuitive that is in our world today. He is truth in and of Himself, independent of any other. You say that of anyone or anything but God in His pure arrogance. But what our culture needs to understand is it is pure humility to say that of God Himself. The same applies to His justice. He is self-justifying. As Isaiah asks rhetorically in Isaiah 40:14, Whom did He consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? God not only is just, but he is just through himself. And if God is self-sufficient, then God must also be self-empowering. Otherwise, he is less than all-powerful. Others have to somehow help him when his power fails. If God is self-sufficient, then he must also be self-knowing, meaning he does not depend on any creature to know what has happened or what will happen. That would entail that his knowledge is incomplete, and he must rely on the knowledge of others to help him somehow make up his plan for the future. And if God is self-sufficient, He must be self-excellent. For if there were another being more excellent, more glorious, more supreme, more majestic than God, then He would be dependent on that being for His very excellency. The very excellency that's supposed to characterize who He is and what He does. We could go on. But that last one is extremely important. If God is this most perfect, supreme, infinite being, as we learned yesterday, what great making attributes must follow for that to be true? Here, The question 
is so relevant, isn't it? If God is this perfect being, then He must have life in and of Himself. If He's dependent on something or someone, He would forfeit His perfection altogether, giving it to another. In the words of Anselm, that, that medieval father whose, whose thoughts so many of the reformers depended on, for anything that is great through through something else is less than that through which it is great. God's perfection must be an independent perfection. His excellency must be self-excellent. His nature must be superior to others in such a way that it is inferior to none. Only that which exists through itself and through which all other things exist is the being that is the, the supreme being. You see, apart from God's aseity, God cannot be supreme. And do I need to spell out the consequences that would have for worship? Christians in past generations some of whom I've quoted, they've conveyed this idea of self-excellency. How? I mean, what word could we use to, to somehow convey this? Well, you don't have to get far in the alphabet. They said, let's start with A. How about the word absolute? Absolute. God is the absolute being. For nothing and no one com- can com- compare to Him. Nothing and no one is like Him. Isn't that what Psalm 86 said? Nothing and no one makes Him who He is. The absolute God. Well, He is the God then of absolute power, absolute knowledge, absolute wisdom, absolute divinity, absolute glory, and yes, absolute excellency. If each of God's attributes is characterized by this type of supremacy, then God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. As one father said, He is a boundless ocean of being. If we're right about this, that God is self-excellent, perfect, supreme, absolute, then the implications for, for the rest of the world are massive. God's supremacy means that all else is dependent for any and all good upon the, the one who alone is independent. I mean, think about this for a second. Applying to the one true and living God what one Greek Thinker said, Paul says this in Acts 17, 28, in him, what? We live and move and have our being. Even the pagans understood this has to be true of something that claims divinity. And Paul says, let me show you who that is. If we return to that Distinction between God's 
incommunicable, incommunicable and communicable attributes. All that means is God's incommunicable attributes are attributes like a society that we simply do not reflect. His aseity is one of them. He is independent. We are very much dependent. And attributes that are communicable, which means in some way, maybe a small way, we somehow reflect them like holiness or knowledge or perhaps love. If we come back to that distinction, God's society means, well, He is the source even of all of those communicable attributes that we see in us in some, in some glimmer of light. Not only is He the good without which there is no good, but He is the beauty without which, without which there is no beauty, the wisdom without which there is no wisdom, the righteousness without which there is no righteousness, and so on. You see, He is not only the source. He is the very, the very cause of every single good quality that you witness in the world and with one another. John Calvin, the, the reformer, I, he puts, I, I just have to quote him here because he, he says this so well. Listen, just listen to this for a second. Not only does he sustain this universe as he once founded it, but his boundless might regulate it by his wisdom, preserve it by his goodness, and especially rule mankind by his righteousness and judgment. Bear with it in his mercy. Watch over it in his protection. But no drop will be found either of wisdom and light or of righteousness or power or rectitude or of genuine truth which does not flow from him and of which he is not the cause. In the end, this attribute of aseity, it unlocks all the other attributes. Without it, every other attribute cannot be what it is. With it, we see why God is who He is. We see why His perfection is, well, so perfect. And yet, it is also the very reason why God's communicable attributes are manifested in us, in this world, as the one who is not dependent on anyone. He is the supreme source from which all else has its being. In Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 44, long before the Apostle Paul, Isaiah teaches us that God is not like the gods of the nations that surrounded Israel. These gods, Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, these gods are fashioned by human hands. Using, a, it's comical, at one point using satire, Isaiah, he explains that the wood that we use to keep warm, to cook our food by the fire, well, this is the same wood we use to form a god and bow down to it and worship 
Deliver me. You are my God. It's tempting to think that that was something back then. It's not. You may not carve a God out of a piece of wood. But when we look at our hearts, as Calvin said, we are idol-making factories. How irrational we are. How irrational. This God, the gods that we create in our hearts, we think they can save us. Something Isaiah recognizes, something that we made with our own hands, out of everyday stuff, in fact, this God cannot save. And so what does God do? He mocks these man-made idols as well as those who are worshiping them. This is, this is not a God who saves. This is, this is a God who must be saved. What a contrast to Acts 17 when Paul describes the Lord not as a creature but as the creator. He's emphatic. God is not worshiped by us as though he needed anything. Biblical worship is due to God, not because he needs us, but because we need him. When we lift up our voices, like you just did, when we lift up our voices, God receives our worship. But don't, don't think, not even for a second, that in doing so, we somehow give to God what he would otherwise lack as if he needs us to somehow make himself complete. Have you ever considered the words of the 24 elders who fall down before the throne of God in Revelation 4, worshiping him, casting their crowns before him? Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. What is the reason they give for this worship? Do you remember? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If God were not life in and of himself, if he were not independent of us, then he would not be worthy, qualified, or able to save us, let alone receive our worship and praise. If God were not a God of aseity, then he would be weak, pathetic, for he would be needy and dependent just like us. He would need saving just like we do. He would be a God like us, but not a God other than us. He would be a God in our world, but not a God distinct from our world. And we might pray 
for this God, as one author has said, but surely, definitely not to this God. Does this make a difference for your identity, for your Christian life, for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. It is precisely because God is free from creation that He is able through His Son to save lost sinners like you, like me. If God were a needy God... He would need our help just as much as we need His help. So I close with this this one thought. If you forget everything else, this you must remember. The gospel you believe in, the gospel that's proclaimed here, the gospel you leave those doors with and share with a lost world, that gospel, that good news, it depends on a God who does not depend on you. Let's pray. Lord, I'll be the first one to say I have been guilty even if it's not in my words and my actions and how I live at times, I have been guilty to live like someone who does not believe in your aseity. Lord, may we humble ourselves this morning. May we recognize who you are in your glory, that you are a God who does not need us, and for that reason you can save us. For that reason, we have the privilege of being counted yours, of serving you, not because you need us, but because you've granted us this gift. And Lord, may that truth, may it motivate us not to become stagnant or closed in, but to take the good news of Jesus Christ, like Paul did in Acts 17. And to go to those who wonder, who are curious, who reflect on the unknown God and to proclaim to them how different you are from anything we could have imagined. May this this characterize how we then share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that sinners everywhere will recognize they are the ones who are needy. And you freely, unconditionally, have the grace that they so desperately need. We thank you for that grace. We depend on that grace. In the name of Jesus our Lord, amen.